in silence. Welcome to Mental Health. It's time to talk. Here's your host, Alan Kaler. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for taking the time to tune in on today's show. We have a man who has earned his freedom from a life battling addictions. We have a musician. We have a very proud father. Yes, today we have Daniel Hearn. Daniel, welcome. What's up, everybody? Hey, Al. (laughs) Now, Daniel, you have shared publicly that you've had quite the extensive background when it comes to drug use. And I'm curious, at what point did you realize that that was starting to spiral out of control? Well, um, I mean, I, I remember um, obsessing about alcohol uh, years before my first use. Um, I, I was so curious. I was like, oh, asking my dad, uh, what does vodka taste like? Uh, what what is what does rye taste like? You know, what's it like to be drunk? And he'd get mad at me. So, I mean, really, I feel like it was out of control before my first drink. Um, I got drunk for the first time when I was 13. Um, it was, I made a mess of myself. Um, but I loved it, you know, like I, 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 I mean, quite honestly, like I, I, I pissed my pants, I made a huge mess. And then I went to school the next day or on Monday and I bragged about it. Like I thought I was a hero, you know? So the insanity was rooted in from the start, really. And it became about getting drunk like all week. It was my job to have enough money and to have someone to get the alcohol for me, you know, ever, ever since then. And that carried on until I was in high school. And then in high school, I started smoking weed. I moved to Saskatoon and like within a few months of living in Saskatoon, I was, I was smoking weed every day, you know, before school at break during lunch, it was an all day event for me. Um, and, and that just carried on into my working career. Uh, when I was in my 20s, I think I was 22 or 23, I, I started doing into the harder stuff, um, like I, cocaine and a little bit of meth. And uh, it, it just, you know, I, and I, I held it together. I thought I was holding it together. Um, as long as I had the dope, I was okay. You know, um, I never really felt like I fit in, but but dope gave me that. So, um, and, you know, I, I would, I became a successful welder. Um, I was working... Uh, Northern Alberta, Northern Saskatchewan. Um, and the funny thing is, is that when I would go up north to work, uh, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't use. But when I came back to Saskatoon, I was in that social setting again where I felt like something was missing. And I just craved it. Like, I just, I had to have it. If I was going to have fun, I had to have my dope. And that was the end of it, you know. And as soon as I was uh, in, in 08, there was a big layoff. And... Um, we, we came back, or I, I came back to Saskatoon full time and I, and I met someone and we just dove off a cliff together, you know, um, I was running a, a welding company and that burned to the ground and, um, it just spiraled until I was, uh, I lost the company. Um, I wasn't able to hold down a job. Uh, I resorted to, uh, I resorted to dumpster diving, you know, and I did that for, for a couple of years, you know, you can live in a house for like two years before they can actually kick you out. <laughs> yeah, you can. I, I owned the house and I just stopped making payments. And I just, you know, like I, I, I got into this cycle where I had to get high so I could stay up all night dumpster diving to make enough money 
to get high so that I could stay up all night dumpster diving. And it just cycled. It was just a cycle of, of it was a disaster, you know? And, and, and in, the, in that mix, um, we, had a, we had a child. And um, when he was three, somebody must have called us in. Something happened. Because one day, a couple of social workers and a couple of police officers showed up at our home. They came in. They looked around. They found, they found a pipe. They found some dope. And they took my son. Hmm. But just, just, it was a normal day. We call it normal, I guess. It was just another day. And uh, suddenly, my son's gone. Just like that. You know? Um, and a couple of weeks later, uh, my partner left me. And some really terrible shit happened. Uh, and, you know, and... That, that terrible stuff, it slowly went away. The people that were doing these things to me, I don't know if they got bored of tormenting me or, or whatever, but um, it just got real quiet. Hmm. You know, nobody was left. Nobody was around. It was just me. There's no heat in the house in the middle of winter. And uh, one day, my mother, she shows up and she takes me out for lunch. And she starts scheming with me. She starts telling me these things that I should be doing. She's like, Dan, you need to go back up north, you know, and you need to, you need to save up some money and you need to get yourself a safe place to stay and you need to get your son back. You need to get a nice home for him. And I'm like, I'm sitting there. And even in my psychosis, I was like, whoa, whoa. And I stopped. I'm like, don't I need to get clean first? <laughs> She's like, Yes. And she pulls out a form that's already filled out. And she puts it on the table like that. And she's like, sign right there. So in 10 days, I was in detox. That was uh, the day I walked into detox was February 12th, 2017. And um, yeah, I, I, I haven't used since then. You know, I went to treatment. I, I, I did what the ministry told me to. As soon as I was out of treatment, I got into a sober living house. You know, and whatever they wanted, I did. I'm like, what do you want? What do you need? What do you need? You know, it, it wasn't about me anymore. It wasn't about what I wanted. It was about what I, what I needed and what my son needed, mm. what I needed for my son. Within six months, I had my son back full time. That's incredible. It's remarkable. It's a, remar a remarkable journey and props to mom. You know, people who struggle with addiction there's this little window isn't there daniel where all of a sudden we can have those moments of clarity but in those moments of clarity there has to be action taken immediately and obviously your mom understood that and had a plan in place yes she absolutely did and you're right uh we're an impulsive breed you know <laughs> we want something we want it right now and that goes like when we're using and we have that moment like oh this sucks i want something better we need it right now you know so, yeah. and, and you know, the stars aligned and she was ready, you know, she, she knows a thing or two about addiction. So yeah, yeah, she does. Now here's, here's where my mind goes. You mentioned that you had your son for three years before there started to be a turning point in some of your behaviors. There are a lot of people, Daniel, who scratch their head and say, how the hell could you continue to lead a life of destruction when you've brought a child into this world. Mm -hmm. How do you help people to explain how our minds work when we are active in our addiction? 
Well, I mean, it's there. It's it. We were on. I sorry. I was on methadone when when my son was born, and you know, I don't know if I can accurately explain the insanity. Um, I I've been using for so long that it felt abnormal not to. Mm. You know, it, it felt uh, it felt wrong. I felt wrong when I wasn't high. You know, I didn't I didn't know how to face reality, and and I thought the dope gave me that layer that I needed, so that I could, like I said, so that I could go out and do the work that I thought I needed to do, so that I could provide for my family, like I thought I was, but I wasn't. All I was doing was paying for dope. You know, but the insanity is like I'm working really hard, so I must be getting somewhere. You know, so I, as far as uh, I mean, the the diseases, it, it it's a it's a selfish thing. It's it's all about it's all about me. You know, it's all about how I feel about things. It's how I feel about my son. I feel better when I'm high. You know, the drugs weren't the problem. The drugs were the solution. The real problem was deeper, was something inside of me that I didn't know how to fix. Yeah, it, it's very, it's very interesting. You know, you talk about the insanity and I remember I had a client who said to me, it's, it's as though there's this burning piece of paper on the ground and I don't want to pick it up, but instinctively I find myself just continuously picking it up and getting burned repeatedly. And, mm -hmm. and at the end of the day, you know, with this disease, it's like our brain screams for what it says we need, not want. And it becomes hardwired that way. And it seems so simple on the outside. You know, how many times, I'm sure, like, did people just say, Daniel, just stop, right? Just stop. Yeah. Okay. I mean, this is equivalent yeah. to stopping to breathe. And like you said, that was your norm. Mm -hmm. Then Absolutely. comes the point that you, and you, exactly that, it's like, what lies beneath? And and fair to say that for most people, it would be pain? You know, I, I don't, I don't really, I, I'm not really sure where my pain came from. Um, I, I didn't have a terrible upbringing. I wasn't raised in like an, a, an extremely dysfunctional home. Like you hear so many other addicts have you know all of this childhood trauma and stuff and that's terrible but in in, in my in my case i i'm not really sure like i feel like i was one of the people that was just sort of born with it like i never felt right hmm. from as young as i can remember i i would always wonder why nobody liked me i thought nobody liked me you know but um looking back now it wasn't that it's just i thought differently you know well, and I remember in one of our conversations, Daniel, you shared with me that you always wished that you were something other than that which you were, right? It's oh, it's yeah. like there was something missing. Mm -hmm. Whatever I had, I wanted more. The friends that I had, I always wanted different friends. You know, like nothing, I was never happy with with who I was. I was never anchored to anything. There was always something missing and I didn't know how to find it, but the pain that I experienced in my addiction, it, it forced my hand, you know, it forced me to, to come face to face with, with, with whatever this is 
and say, and say, I got to change or I'm going to die, you know? And I, I needed, I needed, my son needs a dad. And for some divine reason that registered with me when I was still crazy, you know, and I don't know what clicked because like you said, I was a dad. I was, you know, he was alive for three years and he lived in terrible, terrible conditions, you know, like there's, there's, there's cleaner, cleaner places, places to sleep on the street than what was in that house. Hmm. It was terrible. So. And that's the yeah. thing that's, I think people on the outside looking in again, have such a hard time wrapping their head around because from what I know about you, Daniel, and I guarantee from what other people perceive is you are a loving, nurturing soul who takes immense pride in being a father. The problem is that in active addiction, it's almost as though our soul seems to go into hibernation. And what we talked about before, it, you know, the addiction trumps everything and we become self-absorbed. But I'm curious because as a father myself, I think about having to lose a child. And then I think about fighting to get him back. What was it like for you, Daniel, when you were able to get your son back? You mean the day that he came back to my care? The day he came back. Yeah. It was, it was surreal. It was, uh, see, when I was early in my recovery, I still didn't I don't know what was driving me, you know, because I don't, I didn't have the emotion. I didn't have, I didn't feel love, but something inside of me said, you have to do this. Hmm. Like you just, there, there was no choice. There was no arguing. Uh, and, and when it happened, I mean, it was wonderful. I mean, that was the first, the first time that I felt the, 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 the very first times that I felt genuine love was with my son. And, and I've had, had lots of relationships through my, throughout my life, but I never knew what love actually felt like to actually put something in front of myself, you know? So when I got a taste of that, I was like, yeah, I want more of that. Hmm. Yeah. That's so, cool. Yeah. I mean, so much of addiction has to do with connection and you shared from a very early age there was just something missing then the reason that you turn to dope is because you're trying to connect with those people right and and it's beautiful to see and hear that you are then able to connect with your son and and feel love was it a, a struggle for you to feel as though you were worthy of love you no know. Actually, that, that wasn't it. I, I, it was a struggle for me to learn how to love consistently, mm. you know, cause like you, we were saying earlier, um, we're impulsive, you know, <laughs> one minute I'm like, Oh, I love him so much. Next minute. I'm like, God damn, I wish he'd shut up, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so it took me a while to learn how to, to, um, to love when I didn't feel like loving, you know? Cause I mean, who, it's not all rainbows, you know, parenting and, and life in general. I mean, you don't love everyone all the time, you know, but, but learning that consistency to, to be there 
for, for a reason other than yourself. That is, and you know, it's funny, the other day I was talking with a good friend about um, uh, character defects. And, and we were talking and it was said that, you know, we, we are supposed to remove, we're supposed to ask to have these character defects removed. We're supposed to remove them. What if they're not character defects? What if we're just using them wrong? You know, this, this drive I have to, to feel better, maybe I'm, you know, I, I use that to, to, to get high. You know, that's where my drive was. I, I just put that drive in a different direction. You exactly. Know? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, we are incredibly creative individuals when we're active in our addictions. We have to be. We have to, unfortunately, begin to manipulate, tell some lies uh, to get what it is that we need. And to your point, if we can channel some of that creativity in a different way, OMG, oh, watch yeah. out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's pretty cool. You know, Shauna's chiming in here, Daniel. She says, thanks for sharing your story. You are an amazing dad. And oh, thank you. Terry Lynn says, OMG, I'm in tears. You and Graydon are an incredible team. And, you know, it's it's incredible. It is absolutely incredible to see this turning of a corner because no doubt, Daniel, for how many years were people hoping, praying, wishing, and they wanted it for you, but until you want it for yourself, then change cannot happen. I didn't even see it at the time. I didn't even see... I thought I was only hurting me and I didn't even realize how badly I was hurting me, you know, but I've heard it so many times. Oh, I didn't, I'm not hurting anyone. You know, my, my drug use is only, it's only hurting me. Right. I didn't. And I was like that. I didn't see that looking back now. Holy cow. I don't know how they didn't just kill me. <laughs> <laughs> A you lot of love, I mean? lot of yeah. patience. Oh, unbelievable. Un my family. Wow like strong people. And I'm so fortunate to have the supports that I have in my life. So fortunate. That's everything. Yeah. And to, to, to learn a new way to live, a new way to talk, to surround ourselves with people who actually bring us up, not down. And now you've started to surround yourself with people in uh, an educational setting who, you know, have the same goals as you do to become a substance abuse professional why was it that you made the decision to to become a substance abuse professional and take a message into the workplace? Well, I mean, I, I've seen how uh, people are treated with substance use disorders in the workplace. I know how I've been treated, you know, um, very, very, I think one time I had a supervisor approach me and be like, man, are you okay? Hmm. You know? And, and the weird thing is, is that that one time that that happened, I wasn't using. That was when I was working up north and I was just really tired because, you know, when I was up north, I would work out, like I would wake up early in the morning and I would work out like a savage, you know, like it was just, I, it was the ego, the ego and the insanity, you know, I got to be super ripped. I got to be super, you know, skinny and I got to look super, like it was just, it was the insanity just manifesting in a different way. So, um, you know, I, I, I've lost plenty of jobs where, where I was, I was fired based on the behavior and, and rightfully so, you know, I can't blame them because like I tarnished reputations. I wrecked product. I did, you know, like I, I was, I was high, but 
nobody ever asked me, can we help you? What is happening? You're not like something's going on here, man. Like talk to us. We'd like to help you. Yeah. And I mean, we're, we're not talking about a year. We're talking about 16 years as a welder. Yes. Yeah. And so why do you think that it was so difficult for people to have that discussion with you or to express that concern? Because I'm going to guess that people legitimately were concerned, but what was the barrier for them? Well, um, first of all, it's uncomfortable. Nobody wants to have that conversation, you know. Um, now, I can't speak for them, you know. Um, I, I, I tend to think it's a lack of education. Uh, I, stigma, definitely stigma. There's no hope for him. Why even bother trying, you know. And um, another thing is cost. It's expensive, you know. It's expensive for a company to, to have to have an employee assessed and then, you know, they have to pay for, for certain uh, things in their, in their treatment plan and then their return to work plan. You know, a return to work plan can be a, an, a long, drawn out process. Um, and then there's, there's uh, you know, random drug tests and there's planning around that. Disability management, you know, um, it's, it's, it's not easy. It's not an easy thing to approach. But that's why that's why I'm doing what I'm doing to make it a little easier, to make it a little uh, clearer for people, you know. Exactly. Uh, you know, Wendy, Wendy says, imagine if supervisors or owners asked how you were doing and what's going on instead of firing you. And I think that that's exactly what you're trying to do. You're trying to provide some insight, education. You have the perspective of the person who is struggling and now you're going to have some professional training as well. But what is it that you would have loved to hear from supervisors or people around you in the workplace? What would have helped you? Well, what would have helped me is not what I would have wanted to hear at the time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> True, but what would it have looked like? Now, the best thing that ever happened to me was some really bad shit. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I didn't come sliding into recovery because I'm like, oh, this is awesome. I think I'll quit, you know? <laughs> so um, some straightforward talk, you know, we think you're high. We're going to drug test you. And if you fail, we're going to try and help you, you know? But if we can't help you, then we can't have you doing safety sensitive work. And that's the bottom line, man. So if you want to work with us, we're happy to work with you. We're happy to try and help you because we want you here. But we got to make a decision. And it's one thing to just have the conversation. It's another to have the conversation and offer some compassion and dare I say the word love, right? Because, yeah. because you are not just an employee. You are a human being who is worthy and deserving of being seen heard and supported. Absolutely. And um, I mean, my approach might be a little bit harsh, like I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm human, you know, but um, what worked for me was, was a little bit like what drove me in my recovery and, and the people that I really admire and respect are the ones that will say, Dan, you're fucking up. You know what I mean? 
that's what I need. That's what works for me. Yeah. You know? And I guess that is what makes the world go around. Some, some of us need that straight shooter and others require more of a delicate approach, but you're going to find out pretty quick what, what works and what doesn't. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I also know <laughs> that you've seen your fair share of ways that people can bring drugs into the workplace. And I used to do drug and alcohol training for different companies and I would bring different props. Are there certain ways in which you've seen people get rather creative? Because I'm not saying this for the sake of trying to um, give people ideas. I'm saying this so that people can open up their eyes and see how this is right in front of them often. Yeah. Well, I, for me, I, I didn't see anyone else using on job sites. Like I never used with people on job sites. I mean, when I was a teenager, we would smoke weed together. But um, like when it when it progressed into other things, like I, I didn't want to share my stuff. So I wouldn't tell you know, so but I would just have little containers Like you can get those little pill containers at, at, at drugstores. And I would just crush my stuff up in the morning and I would put it in that pill container. And, you know, I'd go to the bathroom throughout the day. And you know, but I mean, I've heard people and when I went up north, I never took anything with me. You know, I, I still don't understand how I was able to just stop for three weeks straight every month. But um, I know I've heard people uh, I had a, I was talking with a friend a few weeks ago. He said he would uh, take his deodorant apart and put it inside his deodorant stick and then put it in his bag. And I mean, he said the dogs didn't even smell it. So, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Now, I I'm going to do a little bit of quick show and tell. For those of you who are on the podcast later for audio only, this will be a little different. But for those of you who are seeing the video, let me just give you a demonstration because what you're talking about is, you know, the deodorant. Now, this looks like a legitimate bottle of Aquafina water. Yes? Shakes But yes, when you do a little twist, you can see how inside there's a compartment and the thing is i have this in coke bottles i have this in wd-40 where you just screw off the bottom liquid gum you got so many of those out <laughs> i told you it was the <laughs> training that i was doing and and the only reason that i used to share this was so that people could see how it's being brought in and maybe to have their eyes open and and here's another thing we talked about this before but this, you know, when you talk about the drug testing, there are ways in which people try to get creative. And this one is something called Quick Fix. It's synthetic urine. You can actually go to yourinluck, Y-O-U-R-E-I-N-luck.com. Very clever. But you can actually then see how this is used, right? And you kind of put this around the belt you have the synthetic urine in a container. You even have a heat pack, if you can see that, because if somebody's urine is coming out cold, uh, that might be problematic. But well, they, measure, again, they, te they measure the temperature, right? Like as soon as you hand, hand it over. Right. Now they're starting to do accurate testing, but it's unbelievable how people are getting this stuff in. But it demands attention because, as you said earlier, safety is what trumps everything. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I think another reason why sometimes I feel in my experience that people are hesitant is because if there is an actual problem, like if a substance abuse professional deems that the person has a problem, 
then there's a duty to accommodate, right? And that's yeah. where it gets into the whole technical terms, which is why you're going to school and there's a whole model for that. But there is no one way for people in recovery. And that's also why it gets so challenging. Yeah. Yeah, no. And, and the duty to accommodate, it's, I mean, to go into undue hardship is, is complex, is hard. You know, you, you have to bend over backwards to accommodate somebody with a disability, you know, and, and, um, and that includes spending all kinds of money on these accommodations, like if like treatment, you know, um, uh, Modified uh, modified work program, uh, uh, allowing them time off to go to uh, programming to see counselors, you know, and and that 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 requires other employees in the workplace to modify their work program to to accommodate the time you're missing, you know. So it it can get really complicated, you know. Yeah, and on the other hand, you know, it's also wise to invest in someone, especially someone who's been with the company for a long time. And mm -hmm. what I have found and studies show this time and time again, that when somebody has been given that, whatever you want to call it, second, third chance, when someone took the time to care for them and they come back to that place of work, they want to give back like nobody else, right? It's like that mm -hmm. validation was there. Yeah. And, and it goes beyond, I mean, see, if you, if you, if we could educate people in such a way that they would um, that they could see the the lost money due to you know the guy's missing a day of work every week or the guy the person um, uh, and when when they do show up you know they're they're not fit anyways they're they're either they're using or they're hungover or they're dope sick or and they're not performing at their best they're making mistakes and they're costing the company money you know if we if we could educate employers to to use early recognition techniques to uh, approach problems before they come to a breaking point. You know, there's, that's money well spent. You know, you can spend it here and have a more productive, healthier, happier workforce, or you can wait until shit falls apart, you know, and then you risk tarnished reputation. You risk uh, bigger uh, uh, workers' compensation fees um, and you could really hurt someone, you know, turning a blind eye, you could kill someone. Yeah, I think you're the perfect person to do this. I love that you have this drive and ambition to shatter the stigma and the stereotypes. You put a face and a voice to substance use disorders and you know you, you bring the credibility and I think that will be the relatability and there's gonna be people in the workplace too who are struggling and who will be able to connect to your story. And, and I mean, you're just taking life and running and it is pretty cool for me and a lot of us to sit back and just watch what's happening because you are rechanneling all of those talents and skills and abilities. I don't know if it's about making up for lost time, but much respect. What are some of the other things that you have on the go? Well, um, I mean, I have started a podcast myself. Um, I have, um, I've developed a, a clothing brand. Um, I, I am in school for uh, occupational health and safety. I am working towards my ICADC. Um, uh, I want to. I want to say internationally certified alcohol and drug counselor. <laughs> That's fancy. 
Yeah. So, and I'm on my way to be a substance abuse professional. Um, I'm developing um, awareness training, um, PowerPoints, things like that. Um, I've got one developed for opioids and uh, naloxone training. Um, and I am moving into cannabis awareness. And um, I think that's all. I think there's some more, but that's all I can think of off the top of my head. <laughs> oh, and you are a father. So you have a few oh, things yes. on your plate. Yes, I'm a father. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's it's incredible. You know, Shauna chimes in, says she's proud of you. We got Michelle saying congratulations. And, and that's just it. It's like you you literally, in my opinion, have earned your freedom and continue to do so. Uh, th there's an interesting question and I hear this a lot, and I'm sure that you do. One of the questions is, what would you say to someone, Daniel, who's at that point where they just feel like giving up? They feel like giving up? Yeah. Um, I would say the fight ahead of you is not easy, but it's worth it. And I know if they're talking to me that they want to change, you know, and um, if you, if you think you can't, then you're right. If you think that just maybe you can, then that's hope, you know, and if we can channel just a little bit, like if we can spend a quarter of the amount of energy in our recovery, as we did trying to find our dope, nothing can stop us. I mean, Alan, look at what you've done. You know, it, it's incredible what, what we can do with the drive that we find when we make a decision, you know? So what would I say? I would say, don't give up. You're not allowed to quit. This is only the beginning. There's lots of life left. You just got to make a decision. Yeah. Well said. Thank you for sharing that. It's daunting. It's overwhelming to think about sobriety um recovery early on and that's why you know in the program it's kind of that one day at a time sometimes one moment at a time but mm. i don't know what that quote is i read it a couple days ago this is the problem with add it's kind of like telling a joke i just get to the punchline i blow everything but it's, <laughs> it's something <laughs> something to do with a thousand miles starts with the first step or you know and, yeah. and that that's exactly what you're saying it's like don't quit and, and kind of just, it's a process. Oh. And you can't do it alone. Yeah. Yeah. You can't. I, I've never seen it. Yeah. Uh, I know that in your clothing brand, um, some of your handles on social media, it's Daniel Unmanageable. And just lastly, do you mind sharing why you chose to associate the word unmanageable with not only your brand, but social media handle? Um, well, I would love to talk about that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Off you go. <laughs> um, in my program of recovery, one of the first things that I had to do was that I had to admit that my thoughts, that my actions, that my life had become unmanageable. And 
I use that name to remind me every day because I look at social media every day that it's just one step away. That unmanageability is it's 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 waiting for me outside and it's doing push-ups. The stronger I get, the stronger it's going to get. So it's my job to stay ahead of it, you know, get a little better every day. And that's yeah. why I use that name. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, <laughs> Shaden, <laughs> Shaden makes a comment. He says, Alan, there's a website called ADD and Loving It. Check it out if you have time. Shaden, I have had to sit down and watch that. My wife, Tanya, made me sit down and she would often be like, hey, hey, that's you. I was in denial. I am starting to accept it. Oh, and Kimberly, thank you. Kimberly has nailed the quote. A journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. There I it is like I pretty much said that kind of said that I think she said it just like a little bit just a little bit better though <laughs> I'm in denial I uh you know lastly um if people want to learn a bit more about you whether that's the music you've created some beautiful music recently actually featured on telemiracle yes representing well so if people hmm. want to follow you or get a hold of you what would that look like well, you can find me on Facebook. It's Daniel Unmanageable, just exactly how it's how it sounds. Um, I have a YouTube channel. If you go on YouTube and you uh, type in Daniel Unmanageable, my uh, my my personal channel will pop up, and there's videos in there of me singing just on my couch. There's videos in there with my son. There's and there's my my podcast channel. So you can check that out if you want. Um, I've got some interesting guests on there. We talk about some crazy stuff. Um, other than that, Daniel unmanageable at gmail.com. If you want to talk to me about anything, that's where to grab me. Okay. You have put the invite out there. I hope that people follow up. Daniel, thank you so much for taking this time. I have much respect for the work that you're doing both personally and professionally. I'm excited to see where you take life. Well, thank you very much for having me. It was an honor to be on here. And um, thanks for watching, everyone. Thank you and goodbye, everyone. Take good care and be well.